We'll dive into our scripture and into the message here in a moment. But before we do that, I, I've been thinking about something a lot lately, especially just this week. I've been thinking about what a privilege it is to be able to open God's Word and to share God's Word with you every Sunday. And it occurred to me, I don't say thank you often enough for that privilege, so I just want to say thank you. It, it really is an honor for us to be able to come together, to be able to open God's Word together and study together every week. Uh, we spent the last few weeks in a series called Cornerstone. But we're um, basically kind of wrapping that up today. But the, the goal has been twofold, really. For those that don't have a foundation in Christ, is to lay that foundation and talk about some key aspects of who Jesus is. But beyond that, for those that do already have that foundation, the goal has been to dive deeper into who Christ is and into the scriptures. And so that's really the twofold goal today as well, because we're going to talk today about the crucifixion. And for some, maybe this is you know, something you're not quite as familiar with. For others, maybe you've heard this you know, 500 times before and you know everything there is to know, but still the goal is to go deeper in that. Um, for those that, that don't yet already have that relationship with Christ, I just want to tell you on the front end, there will be that opportunity coming out of our discussion of what Jesus did and how he gave his life for us, for us to respond to that. Uh, for those that don't yet know him personally, to trust him. To give your heart and life to Jesus today, and that, that's, that would be a wonderful outcome of the message today. But for those that do know Christ personally, the goal is that, that we would be so impacted by a, uh, just coming back to the scriptures again, that, that our desire would be to worship him more fully. And we'll have opportunity to do that as well and lead into communion. And uh, so I'm excited about where we get to go today, this Friday is the day, we call it Good Friday, uh, because of, of, of the impact of, of Christ's crucifixion, uh, his death on the cross for us. But we'll, we'll dive more into that and opportunity to reflect on the actual event of the crucifixion on Friday. And we have planned what I believe will be a powerful worship experience. I hope that you guys will come and be a part of that Friday at 7. And we're just going to spend some time reflecting on and kind of feeling the weight of what Jesus went through on our behalf uh, on that day. But today we're jumping more into the question of why. I mean, why did this need to happen in the first place? Why, why did Jesus need to die for us? What was the point, the purpose of that? And, you know, it's interesting to see the different ways that the Bible talks about it. First Corinthians 1, for example, Paul describes the cross as a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. So a, a stumbling block, he says, to those who are Jewish. And we know why, because of what Galatians 3.13 is, is kind of quoting this, uh, an Old Testament verse. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. I mean, that, that is the mindset of the Jewish person. Like, this is the Old Testament. And so to crucify someone was for that person to be under a curse of God. And so you could see why it would be a stumbling block uh, for them. And then it says that it's foolishness to the Gentiles. If any of you are coming from a background where maybe you don't have a 
uh, a really extensive biblical background, spiritual background, maybe you're just kind of coming at this and it's all new and fresh, you can probably relate to this idea of the cross seeming like foolishness, right? I mean, you look at this just objectively and it's like, how much sense does it make to say this is the Son of God who was crucified by the Romans and there's just some foolishness in that if we don't have a reason to view it from another perspective. And what we're talking about today is the fact that we do indeed have reasons, a lot of reasons to view it from another perspective, that what we see here is the ultimate expression of God's love for us. What we see in the cross is Christ's death on our behalf so that our sins could be forgiven. And uh, there's nothing more important in all the world than that, than being brought into right relationship with God. And so there is a greater purpose here, but I think it's understanding or understandable, I should say, to, to, to read this and say, well, yeah, this, I, I can see why this would seem like foolishness. But I just want to say from the very beginning that the goal today in going through all of this is especially if you haven't yet come to a point of, of placing your trust in Christ. What we're talking about today is the greatest gift that God has ever offered to us, that, that Jesus died in our place, and he paid the penalty for us. And so our prayer uh, all week long leading up to today would be that you would be prepared to receive that gift and to put your trust in Jesus. And I, I just can't, uh, man, it's such, it would be such a shame to me to think that we would open the Bible together and talk about the things that we're going to talk about today, and it would be nothing more than gaining information, you know, just kind of learning more stuff. Uh, that would be a real shame uh, if we don't walk away from that impacted personally and moving beyond just knowledge and understanding to a personal relationship with Christ. So the question is why? Why did Jesus have to die? Why wasn't there some other way? Why couldn't Jesus just have been a prophet or a teacher? Which, by the way, is what some believe, Muslims, for example, believe in Jesus as a prophet and as a teacher. And there are many others that do as well. Uh, but the question is, but why death? Why did Jesus have to die for us? And I want to begin by pointing out the fact that this was God's plan from the very beginning. You can go all the way back into the Old Testament. You can even see in the book of Revelation as it's looking back. In Revelation 13, 8, it says, All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Now, some translations talk about the, the, the names being written in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world. But even if that is the correct interpretation of how this should be communicated, clearly throughout Scripture we see that, that the crucifixion and the death of Jesus on our behalf was something that God planned from the very beginning. This was the purpose from the beginning. And so let's look at a couple of places in the Old Testament, a couple of different prophecies that point forward to the crucifixion and what would take place, starting in Psalm 22. And I want us to read verses 16 through 18. Psalm 22, 16 through 18, says, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. 
Now, these words were written by King David roughly a thousand years before the death of Jesus. And I might point out they were written about 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. So we have many, many centuries yet to come before the Persians, 6th century, invented crucifixion, which was this horrible, painful way to, uh, to torture and kill someone. And it's such, uh, such an awful experience that we get the word excruciating from that, which literally uh, means out of the cross. And so we have taken this experience of crucifixion to describe pain that is beyond what words can express. That's what crucifixion was. That's what Jesus went through on our behalf. He went through pain that was beyond what words could express. According to the National Library of Medicine, medicine, excuse me, the scourging that was provided prior to crucifixion would lead to hemorrhaging and dehydration which caused hypovolemic shock. A condition where blood or other fluid loss renders the heart unable to circulate blood throughout the rest of the body. And as a result, organs begin to shut down. The effect of the hypovolemic shock was exaggerated due to lack of sufficient oxygen in the blood. And so death would either come by cardiac arrest because there, there was no blood getting to the heart, wasn't able to get blood to the rest of the body, or through suffocation. Because the victims on the cross were, were not able to breathe and they would have to push themselves up in order to take a breath. And so many of them would die of asphyxiation. And uh, the, the Roman soldiers were known to even break the legs of those on the cross so that they could not push themselves up to breathe. They were even known to do things like building smoking fires underneath the cross so that the smoke coming up would uh, also kind of cause them to suffocate more quickly. And so it was a cruel and awful form of punishment. But it's remarkable to me that places like Psalm 22 speak so clearly. I mean, you read the verses we just read together, and it sounds like a description of exactly what happened in the life of Jesus, really the death of Jesus. It's just incredible, the detail, even down to the, not just the, the piercing of his hands and those kinds of things, but down to you know, casting lots for his clothing and all the things that, that are exactly what took place when Jesus was crucified. And there are plenty of other passages in the Old Testament as well. And I want us to look at one of them, and that is Isaiah 53, which is perhaps one of the most popular, for a good reason, uh, passages that speaks to what Jesus or what the coming Messiah would endure on our behalf. So let's pick it up in verse 4. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 4, says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? 
For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered he will see the light of life. And be satisfied by his knowledge of my righteous servant. Uh, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Isn't it remarkable to read a passage like that and think that it was written so long before the coming of Christ and yet so many things in there. Let's just look at a few of them and I, we don't have the time to go into a ton of detail on them. I just want to point out a few phrases and how we see this fulfilled in the, in the crucifixion of Jesus. Verse 4 says that we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. When Jesus was on the cross, the religious leaders, you remember one of the things they said about him? They said, let God get him down. You know, let, let God rescue him if he wants him. See, the people considered this to be a punishment of God. That's how Jesus was viewed. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Jesus didn't die for his own sins. He died for our sins. He lived a completely sinless life, and yet he died in our place. Verse 6, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. You remember what Jesus cried out from the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, God was placing on Jesus the sin of all of us. And stop and think about this for a moment. As a member of the Trinity, there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who for eternity past and forever will continually live in perfect harmony. There's no separation. There's, there's no lack of unity among the Trinity. Three different persons, but one God. They exist in perfect harmony, except for this one moment. When the father turned away from Jesus and he cried out in agony, why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He took our sin upon himself. Verse 7 says, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And remarkably, Jesus gave no response to the governor named Pilate when he kept questioning him. Aren't you going to respond? And he didn't. He just kept silent, just as the prophecy said. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Quite the contrary, those of his generation were the ones calling out for his death. Crucify him. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Jesus was given a temporary grave by a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea. Verse 11. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus didn't stay in the tomb. He rose from the dead and he saw the light of life once again. Uh, come back next Sunday and we'll dive into that a whole lot further. I'm excited for that. But the, the amount of prophecy that is fulfilled in leading up to the death of Jesus is just absolutely staggering. So seeing Jesus fulfill all these Old Testament prophecies should give us confidence 
that he really is who he claimed to be and that this really is God's plan and was God's plan from the beginning. But you know, it's not only the Old Testament prophecies, but it's also some of what we often call prefigures or types of the coming Messiah that were in the Old Testament. And one of the, the, the best examples of that was the Passover lamb. And you may recall the story of this at the Passover when God was bringing the plagues upon the people of Egypt and they wouldn't let the Israelites go. And there were nine different plagues. They still wouldn't let them go. And then the last plague was the plague on the firstborn animals and children. The firstborn were all to die. And the angel of death was going to come and put to death the firstborn in every single household. But God said, if you will offer this Passover lamb, and you will take the blood of the lamb, and you will put it on the doorpost of your homes, then when the angel of death comes, the angel will pass over your homes. It's, it's an example of uh, atonement, blood being used as an atonement for the people, and it allowed them to, to pass over. It's described in Exodus 21, uh, or excuse me, 12, verse 21, through 23, it says, Then Moses summoned all the Israel, the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the, the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in blood in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes to the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the tops of the door frames and will pass over that doorway, and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. And so the people did that, and then God instructed them. And it's really interesting, right immediately before it even happens, God begins to tell them, now this is going to be a lasting ordinance. This is something that you are to pass on to your children, and you are to set aside a day to celebrate, and you are to offer this Passover lamb every year at this time to remember what I have done. And it's pointing forward to this, this lamb that was sacrificed on behalf of the people is pointing forward to the coming of the Messiah. It is a prefigure or a, a type of, uh, of Jesus' coming. Hebrews 9.22 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But why not? Why, why is this required? We've, you know, many of you probably have heard this before, and we know, but, but why was blood required? Why was death required to cover sin? Leviticus 17, 10 and 11. I will set my face against any Israelite or any foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. Again, Why? For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Now, if you've ever read any of the Old Testament books, such as Leviticus or the other books of the law, you see this repeated emphasis on not consuming blood. When the animals, even the ones that were to be eaten, the blood was to be poured out, and there's a lot of blood in the law, Right? So much so that, I mean, we, we started the year reading and at the beginning of the Bible going through this chronological reading together. Did anybody get a little overwhelmed with all the blood? And it's like, okay, that, that, there's a lot there. And, you know, I just can't imagine worshiping in an environment where the responsibility of the spiritual leaders was to, you know, sprinkle blood on the altar and cleanse. It talks about cleansing things with blood, and there's just a lot of blood. And, and that's just, that's, that's a, 
a different mindset than we have to think about cleansing with blood. We tend to think if blood gets on something, it's soiled, and we want to get it off, right? But in the Old Testament, it was, it was described as, as being a cleansing agent. And it's interesting, if you look at one of the purposes of blood in the human body, in addition to you know, carrying oxygen and nutrients to the lungs and heart and those kinds of things, one of the things that the blood does is it absorbs waste products within the body and it takes it to those organs that can then expel them outside the body. I mean, that's part of, of what blood, it, it is a cleansing agent. It really is, even inside our bodies. And so it gives new meaning to this phrase that we see repeated in the Bible, that life is in the blood. The reason the shedding of blood was required to cover sin is because the payment for sin is, is death, and there's life in the blood. But again, the question that we may ask is, okay, well, couldn't God have come up with some other plan? I mean, couldn't there have been something else that, that would have been able to cover sinfulness, right? Maybe if we do these certain things or go through or say a certain prayer or whatever, isn't there something else? And by asking that, I think there may be an assumption in our minds that is underlying that question. And the assumption is this. Doesn't it seem like requiring death to cover sin is a bit extreme? Especially depending on the type of sin. I mean, maybe we can justify that if we're talking about an axe murderer. But when you're talking about somebody who... Um, you know, maybe has some impure thoughts or somebody who struggles controlling their anger from time to time. Or, you know, those kinds of things were like, man, you're telling me that if that's the only sin you ever committed, that the payment for that type of sin is death. Doesn't that seem a bit extreme? And the answer is no. And I'll tell you why. The reason it's not uh, out of line is because... God is completely justified in removing us from his presence because of our sin. And that's essentially what death is. Death is about separation. See, the, the, the issue is it's not so much about the act of disobedience as it is about the fact that it's God that we disobeyed. Does that make sense? God is the one that, that we have rebelled against, and because of that, it does make sense for him to have this, this, this requirement of death in order to pay sin. Let me give you an example. If you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, again, we look at this story, and God says, you're free to eat from everything except for this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I believe that that was necessary in order for them to be fully human. You know, they needed to have the opportunity to choose to obey God or not to. And after a little while, they chose not to. And the consequence for that, the result of their sin, was that God removed them from the garden. So this uh, access to God, this fellowship with God that they enjoyed on a daily basis died. It came to an end. The wages of sin was death, and they were removed from God's presence. And we might look at something like that and think, wow, isn't that a really extreme punishment for what we might look at and say, you know, was a slip up or something that they, you know, in a weak moment that they were tempted and that they gave in to that temptation. 
And you know, I think it's, it's probably helpful that it was something a little simpler that they did because if it had been some grotesque sin, we probably would have a tendency to focus on the particular sin rather than the fact that it was God that they were disobeying. And that's the point. See, the, 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 the severity of punishment is tied to whom we offend. And think about this for a moment. You, you have small kids and one of them, you know, they're always at each other all the time. And one of them says to the other one, just go away and leave me alone. I mean, you might talk to that child about, hey, that's, you know, don't talk to your brother or your sister that way. You know, you, you can probably address that, I hope. But, but you know, kind of in your mind, you're kind of like, eh, I get it. You know, that, your brother's always picking on you or whatever. And it's like, yeah, I can't, there's a little more grace there, right? But if, if your child speaks that way to you and says, go away and leave me alone, I hope you address that differently because it's never appropriate to talk to your parents that way. What about if you are with your child and you hear him speak to a teacher that way? You hear him tell the teacher, go away and leave me alone. You hear him tell the principal, go away and leave me alone. What if the superintendent of the schools comes in, your child looks at the superintendent and says, go away and leave me alone. You're probably going to react a little differently, right? What if they happen to meet the governor? What if they meet the president of the United States and like, go away and leave me alone? You see, there's something about knowing who you are offending that impacts the, the, the severity of the response to that. Guys, we're talking here about offending Almighty God. And so that's why the, the, the punishment for sin makes sense. The consequences of their sin was that God put them out of the garden. But let me just point out an incredible act of grace that you know, maybe sometimes we can miss. And that is that, that once they ate from the fruit, it says their eyes were open. They realized they were naked, so they were ashamed. And before putting them out of the garden, what did God do? He clothed them. He got the skins of animals, which, by the way, would require the shedding of blood, right? First example of an atonement sacrifice. He clothed them, and he extended grace to them. So one more scripture passage I want us to, to read together, bring it into the New Testament. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Church family, let's, let's just be really clear in our understanding that Christ suffered on our behalf. When they took the whips and, and were, were scourging Jesus and ripping the flesh off of his body, he felt every one of those lashes. When they took the nails and drove them through his hands and through his feet, he felt the searing pain of that. When he was nailed to the cross and, and couldn't breathe and had to push himself up just to, to take a single breath, he felt every bit of that pain that was coursing through his body. But the physical pain that Jesus experienced in the crucifixion was not the worst of the pain. See, the worst of it is what we talked about earlier. It's the fact that Jesus took on the full wrath of God on our behalf. It's the fact that, that God the Father turned away from the Son in that moment when Jesus became our sacrifice for sin. The physical pain was just a drop in the bucket of agony that Jesus felt for us when he took our punishment for sin. 
The point of all this is clear from 1 Peter 3.18. The reason he did these things, it says Christ died for us. He suffered for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? To bring you to God. See, that's the point. The reason that Jesus died for us, I mean, yes, it was, to, it was God's plan from the beginning. It was to fulfill prophecy. It was all these different things pointing forward to the coming Messiah. But, you know, if I could just sum it up like this, the reason Jesus died is because he loves you. Because he loves you. That's why. That's why Jesus went through all of this. That's why all the physical pain. That's why the agony of being separated from God. Jesus did this for us because he loves us. And because apart from his sacrifice on our behalf, the wages of sin is still death. Our sin still separates us from God on our own. But now we have another alternative. And that is that we can place our faith in Jesus. We can trust in him and the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. We can receive the offer of forgiveness that God extends to us. Somebody's ready to do that today. Somebody is ready to respond for the very first time today by saying, Yes, Jesus, I'm trusting you. I'm giving my heart to you. I'm, I'm giving my life to you. I am putting my faith in you as the one who died in my place. And if that's you today, I want to invite you, whether you're watching with us at home, whether you're here with us in the room, I want to invite you to offer a prayer that is a prayer of surrender to Christ. A prayer of faith, a prayer saying, Jesus, I believe that you died for me. See, essentially, there, there are two things that, that we have to do our response to Christ. And one is to acknowledge our sinfulness. To say that I recognize that I, I've fallen short and I'll never be able to be good enough. See, some of you are trying to be good enough on your own, and it's never going to happen. We will never be good enough to meet God's standard of complete obedience. So number one is that we acknowledge our sinfulness and we'll never get there on our own. But number two is that we surrender to Christ by putting our faith in Him. We're, we're turning away from our sinfulness and our own efforts, and we're just saying, Jesus, I'll never get there, but I believe you did this for me. So I want to give you that opportunity to pray. I want to urge you to pray a prayer, not just because you're saying words, but because you are choosing to put your trust in Jesus, the one who died for you. And if that's your decision today, and you've not done that before, I just want you to pray with me. Let's bow together. And I'm going to lead you through a prayer, and I'll, I'll just pray through these little phrases, and I'll stop and give you time so that you can repeat this to God. But let this be your prayer. Jesus, I confess that I am sinful and that I've made a mess of things on my own. I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. Right now, I turn from my sins and I place my full trust in you. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for making me your child. Amen. If you prayed that prayer of faith today, 
You need to let somebody know. Jesus died for us publicly. He called us to follow him publicly. And when you make a decision to trust in Christ, you need to let someone know. So if you're watching online, I want to encourage you. If there's a little button on the bottom that says prayer where you're watching on that platform, you can click that button and just communicate to us that way. If not, then whatever form you're watching, just go in the comment section. And just leave a little comment that says, I trusted in Christ today. And that way we'll know how we can come alongside and pray with you and encourage you in that. If you're here with us in person, I want to encourage you as we begin to have a worship time in a moment, just slip out and go to the next step center. There'll be somebody there waiting that would love to be able to, to, to celebrate with you and to, to talk about how, where we go from here and what that looks like. For those that, that do know Christ already, as we're going to enter into a time of reflection, we're just going to have a time where, uh, where we just really allow God to work in our hearts and to help us focus on the cross and who he is and what he has done for us. So I just want to pray and ask that God would prepare our hearts for this time of response and our time of worship and just celebrating the cross and who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, right now, I do ask that our hearts are ready as we enter into just a holy moment, a time of worship, Lord, a time of reflection, a time of just remembering what you've done for us. Stir our hearts toward you, we pray. And Lord, we give just everything to you. We, we want to surrender. We want to be completely yours. And I pray that there's nothing holding us back from being Surrender to you 100%. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.